0: It's been a while since Thena had given us a history lesson, so I knew we were due for one shortly. When they told me we were going to revisit the past events of 9-11 and a wild case that sprung from the tragedies of the day, I had no idea what I was in for. Welcome to Cryptic Soup. For those of you who like to exaggerate your stories, today we have the queen of exaggerations for you to learn all about. It's 852 here in new york i'm Brian Gumble. we understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of manhattan you're looking at the uh, world trade center we understand that a plane has crashed into the world trade center we don't know anything more than that we don't know if it was a commercial aircraft we don't know if it was a private aircraft we have no idea how many were on board or what is th- what the extent of the injuries are right now we, are, uh, we have, I understand, an eyewitness on the phone right now. Sir, sir good morning. This is Bryant Gumble. Could, could you give us your name?
1: Yeah, my name is Stuart.
0: Stuart, where are you right now?
1: I'm working at a restaurant in Soho.
0: All right, so tell us what you saw, if you would.
1: I literally, I was waiting at a table, and I literally saw a, it seemed to be like a small plane. I just heard a couple noises. It looked like it, like, bounced off the building, and then I, heard a, I just saw a huge, like, ball of fire on top, and then the smoke seemed to simmer down. And it just stung, you know, a lot of smoke is coming out. And that's pretty much the extent of what
0: I saw. Welcome to Cryptic Soup with Thina and Kylie. Originally, this episode aired and we had some issues with it. We have edited it again to fix as many of the problems as we could. And we hope you give it a listen. All right. So I know that tonight's episode is about 9-11. Um, and I just I just have to give a tribute to my band years of... My senior year in high school. Were you in high school in 9-11? No, you weren't. You
1: were in like fifth grade.
0: Right. Okay. And we did a tribute to 9-11 as our show for I that year. Yes. And so we were at the beginning, we had these like worker suits on and we had to like change into these like angel things. It was super weird. Um, But to get ready for that. And to just be in the mindset of all of the things that happened that day, we watched like three different videos of live footage from people's phones as a band.
1: And I will never forget those. That was hard to watch. So you started this and all I could think of was the uh, YMCA music video where like the dudes are in like construction worker and like all the different outfits and I you feel said, like I didn't know that Why
0: had a music video. I hope
1: that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but anyways, it got it got different. Yeah, it got way different. Did you ever? Were you one of those people that ever fell down that hole of Fifty Shades of Grey? Yes, and the MCR and the Twin Towers and all that.
0: Yes. Yeah, there's that too. All the conspiracies. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. So a lot of people know what 911 is but we're we're doing a different take on it kind of cuz it's september now so we figured we should start talking about it and the way our episodes line up it's pretty it's pretty uh beneficial to talk about it right now i guess do you remember where you were 911 oh yeah i do um
0: yeah i was in fourth grade and it happened. they turned the uh, they turned the TVs on. We all watched it a million times, and then our parents came to
1: get us. So I was in public school and I had this teacher and uh, her husband worked in New York. Mm. although he luckily worked on the other side of town, uh, well, not the other side. it's not a town either. He worked about seven blocks from the towers. Which sounds like, oh, that's pretty far away. But because of the debris and everything that happened that day, she was still genuinely worried. And she's like, oh, my God, he's going to get hurt. He's going to get he was perfectly fine. Nothing ever happened there. Don't worry. But he was there. I don't know what he did, but he was some sort of businessman and he was there that week. But he had been there already for like two weeks and then he was supposed to stay two more weeks. But instead he came home pretty briskly. He rented a car and drove back because, you know, like planes weren't um, right. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were definitely grounded for a a while. It was, it was a scary time to need to be going someplace else in the U.S. Um, but I remember the news broke and they started turning it on all the TVs, but our teacher was breaking down so bad. She couldn't fathom putting it on her TV. She's like, oh my God, what if something happens to my husband? So they ushered our classroom into one of the other classrooms and let us watch it in there. And our teacher cried alone in the classroom.
0: Which is really crazy so that it's you know, because we're like, you're, were you fourth grade?
1: Yeah, yeah. So fourth grade, which is what? How old are we? This was two thousand and one, and we're both are you're nineteen ninety two also? Yeah. Uh, we were like nine, ten-ish.
0: Yeah still really young. Yeah. Like to even fathom all of that. Like it doesn't, it doesn't I
1: compute. didn't fathom it very well because I mm-hmm. later, a few years later, like learned more about it and we learned about it in history class. And even though I knew it was a big deal and stuff, like learning about it later, I was like, whoa, this was so much of a bigger deal than I understood it to be. Like I got mm-hmm. it. It was a big deal. But even just like how it occurred and watching like videos of it later in life and stuff like that, yeah, I learned a lot more about it later in history class. Or, and then, or like how banned. long the, the war went on afterwards and stuff. Like, I remember every few years, I was like, oh, the war's over now, right? And people were like, no. no. <laughs> Didn't it last till 2013, I think, or something like that? Like, like technically, it was it was really long because I think Osama bin Laden wasn't killed until either 2011, 2012, or 2013. So, yeah, that sounds about right. Well, that's what this case is about. September 10th, 2001, the night before, there were news reports about Michael Jordan's amazing return to the NBA. People were freaking out. They were so excited. He did like a press conference. People were talking about it all across the U.S., watching their TVs and thinking this. This is it. This is going to be the biggest story of to- 2001. This is going to be the highlight of the week. Like, This is the biggest thing happening. Well, I remember I remember part of this press conference, and I remember one of the things that people were like, Why did you want to return? He's like, it's literally for the love of the game. It's just the love of the game. It's nothing more than that. It's not the paychecks. It's not the this, this. It's the love of the game. I remember that part. People were watching this. And the saddest part is they were so wrong about this being the biggest story. Because no one would have known or even could predict what was going to happen the very next day. It was going to be a sunny, pleasant, normal day in New York City. But it was going to become the host of one of the most horrific terrorist attacks the U.S. will ever see. So, yep. It's time for history before the mystery. We need to talk about the attacks and what like transpired that day a little bit before we talk about Tanya and the case. So, let's talk about 2001 and what happened. Everyone that was of a of a little bit older age, probably anyone above around actually 10 and older, they remember what they were doing on September 11th because that day went down in US history and it changed a lot of lives. It was a ripple effect of more than just the lives that were taken that were caused or that were affected. There were so many people that had to deal with the aftermath. The whole city had to deal with the aftermath and just the way life had changed, not only in the U.S., but just everywhere because of it. the day and the day that we're talking about was dubbed the 9-11 attacks because it happened September 11th. And it was a series of airline hijackings that were committed by 19 militants that were associated with the extremist group called Al-Qaeda. The group targeted the United States as one of the homes for the deadly terrorist attack that they would uh, ensue on American soil.
0: And it's very interesting that you said Al-Qaeda.
1: Instead of Al-Qaeda? Yeah. Okay, I... Is this a tomato tomato situation? Yeah, I think it genuinely is because I've always heard Al-Qaeda. And then just today, for the first time, I heard Al-Qaeda. And I was like, oh my God, have I been saying it wrong all these years? But then in the movie, the actual documentary I watched, I literally heard both from two different like people that study history. Hmm. And I was like, oh. So maybe it's like a I think it's your dialect. Yeah. Well, I said I say Al-Qaeda. I had to think about it. I'm Al-Qaeda. But again, that's how I was taught to say it. Yeah. Um, Interesting. There are a lot of names in this where I'm trying my best and I did look them all up. But there are some kind of hard pronunciational names. So please, guys, if I mess up, don't be upset. I'm trying my best. The attacks against New York and Washington and um, were a lot. They caused extensive death and destruction and triggered an enormous U.S. effort that had to combat terrorism, including a full-on war. It was, some, it was the sum of 2,750 people that were killed in New York, 184 at the Pentagon, and 40 in Pennsylvania. There was one of the hijacked planes where the passengers crashed because they attempted to retake the plane, and we'll talk about that too. All 19 terrorists that were attempting to take over the plane also died. The name Osama bin Laden had became a name and a thing of like terror, fear, and hate for most people who were living in the aftershock of the events. Bin Laden was known as the leader of al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda, and he was one of the masterminds behind the attack. Some people think that he was the full-on ringleader, but um, he's the ringleader of al-Qaeda, not of the attacks, which people don't always realize. He didn't plan the attacks, technically. He just gave permission for them to happen and helped fund like, them and do like that. He's like the whole.
0: CEO. He's like the manager that says, yeah,
1: go ahead. Yeah. He approved it. And I didn't know that until I was older. I thought he was the head honcho of all of it. I thought bin Laden was like the, the whole guy. deal. Yeah. There were other members that contributed to the attack and the events that unfolded that day. The key operations planner of the September 11th attack was a man named Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, but he's often referred to as KSM by the 9-11 commission report and in most media that you find. So I'm going to call him KSM. So I'm also not accidentally mispronouncing it. According to KSM, the plan was to blow up some dozen American planes and Asia, but it was supposed to happen in the mid 1990s. This was a plan that he had called Bojinka and it ended up being a failed plan. However, even though his plan failed, it was still his dream and he wanted to make it a reality. I typed that sentence and in my head, I was like, That is such a weird sentence to call that someone's dream. Like, oh, yeah. To know that your life's dream is to like kill multiple people, people and blow up buildings. Like that sounds like I should be using a different word there, but that's genuinely what it was to this man. And that's really weird. Like, that's really sick and twisted to call it a dream. In 1996, KSM had actually met Osama bin Laden. Finally, in Tora Bora of Afgh. Gosh, I can't talk at all. Afghanistan. The 9-11 Commission, which was formerly the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, that got reformed to be called the 9-11 Commission, <laughs> because that title sucks. It's <laughs> a little long. A little <laughs> wordy. Um, they explained that it was then that KSM had presented a proposal for an operation that would involve training pilots who would crash planes into buildings in the United States. So KSM created the plan. Al-Qaeda provided the personnel, money, and logistics support to execute the operation, and bin Laden had led the attacks on New York and Washington, D.C. So on September 11th, the plan was for the group of attackers to board four domestic aircrafts at three different East Coast airports then disable the crews with box cutters that they secretly had on them all before taking control of the aircrafts and crashing into the U.S. buildings. Here is the summary and timeline of what happened on September 11th So I know we technically haven't gotten to the the case yet, but there's a reason we we got to go over a lot of this. So we're going to go over what happened that morning from 5 a.m. to essentially Kind of 8 p.m. that night, but we're going to have a huge gap. We're going to stop at 10 a.m. So we're going to talk from 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. Because that's when everything happens, which is also scary. It's less than like a five hour time block at 545 a.m. Muhammad Ada and Abdul Aziz Al-Aman Al-Omari were two of the intended hijackers. They passed through security at the Portland International Jetport in Maine. They board a commuter flight to Boston Logan International Airport. Then they board American Airlines Flight 11. At 7.59 a.m., Flight 11 takes off from Boston, headed to Los Angeles, California. There are 76 passengers, 11 crew members, and five hijackers on board. At 8.15 a.m., also I'm going to talk about all four flights, so it's going to sound kind of confusing at first, but it's the only way this whole timeline makes sense, and I'm sorry. At 8.15 a.m., United Airlines Flight 175 takes off from Boston, also headed for Los Angeles, On this one, there are 51 passengers, nine crew members, and five hijackers on board. At 8.19 a.m., a a flight attendant on Flight 11 named Betty Ann Ong alerts the ground personnel that a hijacking is underway and the cockpit is currently unreachable. At 8.20 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77 takes off from Duels outside of Washington, D.C., headed for Los Angeles. That is so quick. How fast
0: everything's happening. Flight 11 left at 7.59 And all of a sudden it's unreachable by 819. Mm -hmm. It's insane. That's like that's barely immediately. That's once
1: you're at like
0: whatever it is, 10,000. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There were on flight 77, there were 53 passengers, six crew members and five hijackers on board. I guess I'm sorry. I'm going back to what you just said. However, they didn't want to get too far because planes do travel kind of fast. And if they're already in Boston and they're wanting to attack in New York, you do have to start. You have fast. To, yeah, you have to you have to grab. But they didn't probably want to do it at the end of an airplane flight. So they had to. Who knows? At 8 24 AM, Mohammed Atta, a hijacker on flight eleven, unintentionally alerts air controls in Boston of his attack. He meant to press the button that allowed him to talk to the passengers on the flight, but he ended up clicking the wrong button and telling the like flight personnel on the ground what was happening. Honestly, good thing he did that though. I mean, it didn't help a lot, but it helped. A little, a little. At 8.37 a.m., after hearing the broadcast on Flight 11, the Boston Air Traffic Control alerts the U.S. Air Force Northeast Defense Sector, who then mobilizes the Air National Guard to start following the plane. At 8.42 a.m., Flight 93 takes off from Newark, New Jersey, after a delay due to routine traffic. It was headed for San Francisco, California. This flight has 33 passengers, 7 crew members, and 4 hijackers are on board. At 8.46 a.m., flight 11, the first flight of the morning, crashes into the World Trade Center's North Tower. And for those of you that don't know what the World Trade Centers were, they were two twin towers, hence the name of the Twin Towers, that were located directly next to each other. And there is a north and a south tower, and they have 110 floors. They were built as standalone like skyscrapers that were extremely tall. 110 floors is really high, and these planes end up crashing towards the top. All passengers aboard are instantly killed in the flight and the employees of the World Trade Center were trapped above the 90, 91st floor. Most onlookers at this point actually thought that it was an accidental plane crash that was reported. And so they weren't super like they were worried because they were like, oh, fuck. they weren't like scared. Yeah, they were like a plane crash. That's fucking insane. That's the end of it, right? Like that's right. the end of what happened. They did not think that this was a terrorist attack or something that was going to even be repeated or anything. At 9.03 a.m., Flight 175 crashes into the World Trade Center's South Tower. So now both towers have officially been hit. All passengers aboard are killed instantly, and so are an unknown number of people within the tower. Both towers were badly damaged by the impacts and began erupting into flames at this point. Office workers who were trapped above the points of impact started leaping to their deaths because they realized the alternative option would be to be engulfed by flames and slowly burn to death. During news reports, you could see people jumping from the towers. It was horrific. At 9.05 a.m., President George W. Bush, who was the president at the current time, was in an elementary school classroom in Sarasota, Florida, giving a speech, and he's informed, like, secretly. Bush's chief of staff, Andrew Card, whispered into the president's right ear, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. And that's how Bush finds out. And I remember vaguely Bush giving, like, Years later, speeches and mm-hmm. people asking him, like, what did you do? And I remember one thing he was like, I was scared to scare the children. I remained calm in my seat for the moment. And I was like, OK, we need to deal with this. And he like he said that that was one of the hardest parts was trying to remain calm. So he didn't scare everyone around him. Keeping his composure of an a major attack. Yeah. Yes. When you're around a bunch of children, nonetheless, like it was not they're not going to get it. They're not. But he knew better than to. Yeah. At 9.28 a.m., the hijackers that were attacking Flight 93 had departed from Newark, New Jersey. And that's when they, uh, the hijackers had started to attack. At 9.37 a.m., things are just... At this point, the first flight was only boarded like three hours ago. Right. Or four hours ago-ish. Like, things are fast. Flight 77, which is the third plane now, it crashes into the Pentagon. All passengers aboard are instantly killed So are 125 civilian and military personnel that were in the building. At 9.45 a.m., the Federal Aviation Authority ordered a nationwide ground stop under the Operation Yellow Ribbon. All civilian aircrafts were ordered to land at the nearest airport. At 9.55 a.m., the Air Force One was uh, inhibited by President George W. Bush, aboard it, and they took off from Florida to return to D.C. At 9.57 a.m., passengers aboard Flight 93 began to run up towards the cockpit. The pilot begins to roll the plane back and forth in an attempt to destabilize the revolts that were happening. And the passengers were informed of the events currently happening via cell phones, so they were attempting to overthrow their assailants. At 9.59 a.m., the South Tower of the World Trade Center starts to collapse due to heavy damage. Do you remember? I'm so sorry for breaking from the timeline again but do you remember seeing that video and how Mm -hmm. everything turned to flames and it looked it looked like uh, uh, almost like fake yeah because it just like started internalizingly like crushing down on itself and it just kind of like started falling to the ground it looked like it was made of paper or something well you would think it it was in my head like at the time you would think that they would fall like (laughs) like, sideways or sideways like but they just like crumbled crumbled down
0: like just literally collapsed in a straight line all the way down straight
1: down to the ground it was so and the flames just boofed off the top like it was so unreal and it was so bright on the screens and stuff i remember that because i was just like how's there that much fire like where's the fire coming from i'm so confused but it was you know the air mixing with everything and i'm just like where is all this if it's glass like does glass burn i remember like Being young enough, I had so many questions. I was like, what is happening? Mm -hmm. Kind of like I like I said, I didn't totally get it, but I was like, I this isn't good. Like I knew that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At 10.02 a.m. Flight 93 plows into an empty field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The ultimate target was unknown, but they think that it was likely headed for either the White House or the U.S. Capitol. At 10.18 a.m., President Bush authorizes any non-grounded planes to be shot down. At that time, all four hijacked planes had already crashed, but the president's team was operating under the uh, impression that Flight 93 was still in the air. So they were kind of trying to shoot that specific plane down, knowing that it was still in attack mode.
0: Well, and if you watch the movie, they do say that where like the the passengers come to the realization where they're like, the Air Force is going to shoot us down. So we either stop them and die with like dignity or... We just wait to get shot down. Because essentially
1: they have, they have three options. The Air Force shoots them down and they die. They crash into something and they die. Or they purposely take down the assailants and hopefully hurt no one else and they potentially die. Yeah, that was the only way to like possibly survive. And those all sound like pretty awful options, but there's definitely one that's a little less awful, maybe. I mean, not for the people on board and I get that or anyone that's affected by their family on board, but at least they were able to kind of contain what is happening in a sense. Yeah. At 1028 a.m., the North Tower of the World Trade Center collapses. So this is only uh, about less than 30 mm-hmm. minutes later Yeah. from the South Tower. And now we have both towers collapsed. Due to both towers collapsing at such a brisk rate, there was clouds of smoke and debris that were filling the streets of lower Manhattan and almost causing like a state of emergency. Uh, Well, that like air quality wise? It kind of did the mushroom effect. Yeah. um, Like atomic bombs and stuff do where it like does that like big mushroom cloud in a sense. Mm -hmm. And it was doing things like that, but it was just debris and smoke and everything. So people in New York, everything was becoming chaos. Because even if you weren't in the towers, if you worked anywhere near it, there was debris falling on your building, on your cars. It was straight out of a, a film. Almost. It seemed like something unreal. So to tell you how monumental the destruction was that day, the fires at the World Trade Center, the site smoldered for over three months after the attacks happened. Which that was another thing as a kid. Like I heard that sentence multiple times and it didn't register how crazy that sounds. Yeah. Three months, right? Three months—that's a long time. Three months.
0: Well, I mean, there's, it's there's, big. Well, and there's like electric in in buildings, and then you have all of the other stuff that created everything, and then you just have other other things like things in the basement of those. And yeah, like you just—I don't—I don't know a lot about buildings like that, but I'm sure there's some sort of like.
1: Well, and plus I solar
0: nuclear type of situation, maybe I'm wrong. But
1: also, if you're sitting there trying to put water on stuff, that's also creating movement. Mm -hmm. So that's causing items to shift, which could be opening new pathways to like smoke and fire and debris. But also, if there was a person or something that could cause something to fall, hurt, injure, kill, maim, Mm
0: -hmm. potential
1: survivors at the same time. Right. At 830 p.m. that same day, September 11th. President Bush addressed the nation from the Oval Office in a speech where he laid out a key doctrine of his administration's foreign, future foreign policy. He said, we will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these act, acts and those who harbor them. There was uh, that that, like, spoke to the nation. But there's another thing he says, and I wish I would have put it in here. I'm now thinking about it. But on I'll talk about it in just a second. On September 14th, George Bush visited Ground Zero which is essentially the site where this happened. And he issued a $25 million bounty for bin Laden captured dead or alive. I remember something from that day specifically. There was like an either I saw it on the news or I heard it in an article or something. And it always stuck with me. I, I'm slightly paraphrasing. Just keep that in mind. I remember George Bush was there and he had like a hard hat on or something, if I remember correctly. And mm-hmm. he was helping people out. And the guy said he like couldn't hear him or he couldn't like, He didn't know what he was saying or something. And George Bush gave this like three sentence speech. And I don't remember it fully, but I remember like everyone's like, that's the speech of the nation. And it was something he's like, I hear you. You may not hear me, but I hear you and I hear America and I Mm. hear we need to stick together. And I hear the sound of freedom and people like, you know, he gave one of those speeches yeah. and it was like a moment that like shook the nation. People were like, <gasps> well, it's super inspiring. Yeah. And it was just like, we need to come together. That's what really brought the whole thing to like this big moment was George Bush's m- moment there. From that point, once Bush visited ground zero and people started really seeing things and hearing more about bin Laden, cause he was, all over the news, every day, for months, years, all the time. The country worked relentlessly to try and put itself back together and to honor the lives of anyone and everyone who was not only there, but who could have been lost on that horrific day. There were help groups. There were different events that were happening. The World Trade Center's Survivors Network was a support group. And on one day, a few years later, they were listening to a woman, Tanya, describe the horrors of what happened and what she lived through. Tanya had described how her arm was deeply burned as she escaped the flames and had to crawl to safety. Tanya was inside the South Tower when United Airlines Flight 175 hit. She said she was crawling along the 78th floor out of the 110th floor building as it's on fire and everything's happening. Only 19 people at or above the 78th floor would survive this attack. Keep in mind. Tanya said, I looked around and it was like a horror movie. People were mounted on top of each other. The smell of burned skin and people's insides. I was gagging. I kept thinking about my fiance and about our wedding. I wanted to wear that white dress and swear my love for him. Tanya was talking about her fiance, Dave, who she said was killed in the North Tower and told the world of another sad tale that happened to her that day about a dying man in the rubble who gave Tanya his wedding ring to give to his widow. Dave's family was in mourning and he was one of the lives that was claimed that day. Hearing the story at the group, everyone realized Tanya's story was moving and so relatable to tons of other survivors. Tanya talked about her rescuer, who was someone that was featured heavily in the media due to his bravery. His name was Wells Crother. He was known as the man in the red bandana. He was only 24 years old at the time of the attacks. He was a volunteer firefighter. He had made three trips to the sky lobby, saving as many people as he could until the burning building collapsed and he ended up not making it. was only 24 that's so sad and his so at first a lot of people this is a side note from the episode a lot of people didn't know who he was people were just like that man he had the red bandana he was so helpful and like people told his story about who he was and one day they were talking about it in the news and his mom heard it and she's like oh my god I know who that is and she started like asking people if oh like is this the guy that helped you and stuff and she found out it was her son and she started like speaking out about it and stuff And it was this beautiful, like everyone was like, oh, my God, he was a wonderful human. And he gets recognized as one of um, the people that was really helpful that day. And he saved a lot of lives and helped a lot of people. Well, Tanya said that she had also met him that day and that he was one of the he was the person that saved her and got her out of this building. Tanya said she woke up six days after 9-11 in a burns unit. She was told her fiance had died in the attacks. She was in the survivors group. She was actually the president of it. And the survivor group had about 500 members. People would often tell their stories and seek comfort in other members of the group, knowing they weren't alone in what they felt and what they went through. So Tanya had uh, woken up, like I said, she was in this group. So in 2004, Tanya joined the World Trade Center's Survivors Network support group after a man named Jerry Bogazic. Jerry was one of the founders, and he learned through word of mouth that a woman named Tanya Head had developed an online support group for 9-11 survivors. So after months of email correspondence back and forth between Jerry and Tanya, they ended up merging their groups. The network's purpose was to provide support to the survivors of the attacks. As most public support was paid to the select group of victims, victims' family, and first responders, the organization intended to bring together and support those that were also just affected by the attacks, including civilians present at the World Trade Center, as well as the personnel and volunteers involved in the extensive rescue and recovery efforts afterwards. So they were really trying to make sure that anyone that was affected was just completely taken care of. And the thing is, is both these people had like a really big part in this, like the yeah, influence. Yeah. And these and these networks. So bringing them together turned two massive groups into one ginormous group. Ginormous sounds crazy because it's only 500 people. But out of I mean, that's a big that's support a pretty, group. Yeah. When you think about it, like support groups are normally like anywhere between like five to maybe 20 20 people. Yeah. Like that's, that's a big group. When someone goes through something as traumatic as this event, it's deemed insensitive to question doubt or confront the people if you think there's inconsistencies or lies in their stories. But that was kind of what was happening here. Tanya's stories had some weird holes in it. So between 2006 and 2007, the New York Times journalist David W. Dunlap and Sergey F. Kovaleski started raising suspicions about her story because they had previously spoken to every person who managed to survive the terrorist attacks above the level of impact because they had a very different story than some other people. And a lot of people noticed something like just like small things like Tanya never had any friends support her, Mm. which sounds kind of silly. But usually, like if your friend goes through something that traumatic, they would be like, oh, my gosh, I'm so happy they're alive. Maybe they'll come to this work group with you, something People thought that was a little odd. But again, it's weird if you question someone about that sort of a traumatic experience also, you know?
0: Yeah, it's like you're judging their their trauma. Their trauma. Yeah.
1: Well, in September, the New York Times sought to verify the key details in Tanya's story as part of an anniversary piece, but they stumbled onto something much bigger. So let's talk about it. They found information about a woman named Alicia, Alicia, sorry, Alicia Estave Head, who was born July 30th, 1973. She is a Leo. She's born on Harry Potter and BJ Novak's birthday. And that's National Mutt Day. She was born in Barcelona, Spain. She had come from a prominent and wealthy family that supposedly was involved in a 1992 fiasco of financial scandals, which her father and brothers had served prison terms in the past. Couldn't find out much more than that, but a few sources had said that. So I put it in in case someone wants to try to find out more. Tanya or Alicia, whatever you call her at this moment. I'm going to keep going with Tanya. Tanya hadn't attended the University of Barcelona and worked for a hotel when she was younger. But during the time of the attacks, she was working in Barcelona as a management secretary and enrolled in a master's degree program. As details of her elaborate story started to unfold, survivors discussed how they felt conflicted by the deception they thought that was happening. Because they were realizing that she had a lot of lies and inconsistencies in her stories. And they were really horrified by her lies, but they couldn't, like... Be super mad because Tanya had done a lot for the group at the same time. Tanya was preparing materials, creating agendas, hosting fundraisers. She even used a lot of her own money to fund special trauma experts to like come and help out. Why did she make up a story about being there if she had all that? She could have easily just. okay, Okay, there's some some conflicts. Yeah. Moral complex. So she was interviewed by the media about surviving the attacks and was invited to speak at conferences. However, as her story became more well known, people started noticing those inconsistencies again. Now we mentioned the holes like let's let's talk about what they were. She randomly started declaring that she had a degree from Harvard and a graduate of business degree from Stanford. But oh, OK, both institutions has no record of her. So why lie about those? That's interesting. She's literally in college, too. Like, she could have just told the truth. But if she would have told her truth about her college, it would have showed where she was during the time of 9-11. So I guess that's why. She claimed she was working at Merrill Lynch in the South Tower. But at the time of the attacks, Merrill Lynch had no record of her employment and they didn't have offices in the World Trade Center. Her burns on her arm, honestly, didn't link up correctly as well to being burns of, like, an attack like that. So. People were like, where, where are these lies coming from? Then a really big plot twist happened. A big part of her story became questionable. Her engagement to her fiance, Dave, remember that part? hmm Who perished in the opposite tower? hmm Dave was real, and he really did pass away in the other tower. However, his family said they had never heard of Tanya and that Dave and Tanya were not a couple. So she, like, chose a random guy? Yes, After her lies were exposed, she tried to vanish from the public eye and even left New York. She backed out of three scheduled interviews she had and later refused to even speak to reporters at all. The Times contacted other members of the group of the Survivors Network and raised questions about her story. By the time September 27, 2007 rolled around, the network voted to remove her as the president and the director of the group, knowing that her entire story was lies now at this point and that she wasn't at the Towers during 2001. At the same time, the Barcelona newspaper called La Vanguardia had ultimately revealed everything. They told her real name and the truth of where she was in 2001. Oof, that sucks. They said that she had been in a class at Asade in Barcelona during the 9-11 attacks. She was literally in class on 9-11. There was no way she could have been in America. There was also stories where her classmates had told where she had told her classmates what happened to her arm, because she really did have burns on her arm. She said that her scarred arm was the result of an automobile accident from when she was younger. But then also some people said, well, she told me it was a horse riding accident years ago. Then La Vanguardia reported that she had attended the class program until June of 2002, actually. And she had told her classmates often that she wanted to work in New York. They also found out she didn't come to the United States for the first time until 2003. My years after in February of 2008, an anonymous email was sent to a Spanish from a Spanish account to members of the World Trade Center Survivors Network, claiming that Tanya Head had died by suicide. It was not true. In 2012, a book and feature film documentary titled The Woman Who Wasn't There told the story from inside the World Trade Center Survivors Network, utilizing interviews with Tanya and members of the network before and after the deception was revealed. So originally this documentary was supposed to be about like Tanya had helped fund it and prepare it and stuff. And it was supposed to be about her story as well as a bunch of other people's stories. But then the truth about her came out and they were like, well, let's yes, talk about let's it. Change that, <laughs> Which is kind of not cool that they did that, but it's cool that they had the original and this new information instead of having to like make a sequel telling what happened. It's, kind of cool that we got all this truth out there right away not right away I guess not right away but, but you know what I eventually, mean eventually yeah yeah in July of 2012 it was said that she was fired from her position at interpartner assistance which was an insurance company in Barcelona because her employers had found out about her ruse that she did in New York about being in the towers so where is she now what's she up to right um it's kind of hard to find information about her actually all we know is in 2021, she opened a renovation company in Barcelona and Spanish newspapers called El Pay reported that she's still registered as living at home at her home in Barcelona. But she hasn't been confirmed to being like seen there on almost the 10 year anniversary of 2001. So in like 2011 or maybe it was 2012 uh, in one of those two years, someone saw her in New York, they said, and they were like, that's shady. Why is she here? You know, like, what, mm-hmm. what's she doing here? But that's that's about it. She just lied. And she lied about being in the trade
0: towers, the world trade <laughs> for the for the clout that you really just don't want.
1: That's not a thing. Yeah. yeah. So it reminds me there was a movie that came out on Amazon Prime and it came out last year. It has Zoe D- Dutch. Is that how you pronounce her name? Do you know who that? No, I don't think so. Okay, well, Dylan O'Brien's in it and he's a douchebag and he has blonde hair. So in this movie, there's this girl and it gives it away in the previews. And I've already kind of given it away. I'm so sorry, (laughs) everyone, but it's still worth watching. It's pretty sad, actually. But it's about a girl and she goes to she she she's a like a social media person. She's trying to be, but she's not very good at it. Well, then she takes time off from work and tells everyone she's going to Paris But then she can't afford to go to Paris, so she just pretends she's in Paris and she starts editing all of her photos to make herself look like she's in Paris so that she seems like cool and hip and that she like went to Paris. But then Paris gets bombed. It's a kind of sad movie once you get closer to the end, but it's essentially kind of like this story. It was about a woman who wasn't there, but also uh, the woman who wasn't there, the documentary about this exact case. And Tanya, I watched it. I want to say I watched it on Amazon. So it's on the same thing, I think. I think, yeah. Tonight's episode, <laughs> uh, the sources were, I used a lot of news articles because that was obviously like the best way to get what happened because she spoke out so much. So I used an NPR news article and podcast station for the Tanya information as well as the New York Times. For the 9-11 timeline and information, I used the Miller Center and Britannica But then I also watched the documentary, The Woman That Wasn't There, about Tanya. Thank you guys to help make this podcast what it is. You're all part of the CSP family and community. Don't forget to follow us on
0: Instagram, which is at Pod. where DMs are always open for suggestions. So slide
1: on in. You can also leave an Apple podcast review and rating. Please don't talk about how I say things wrong, though. That'll make me cry. Um, Spotify ratings as well also help. Remember, guys, to always subscribe, follow, tune in and keep up with us. And remember to join the conversation where we'll see you next Tuesday for the next episode. Stay tuned. What's that song? It's been a while since I've calling you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or Whatever that song is, you know, is that what you just started singing as soon as I said? It's been a while. Yeah,
1: in my head. no was going like to, that but song, I didn't actually. want to mess up your thing. Isn't it Creed? Yeah, it's Creed for oh, sure. It's yeah. Creed. Welcome, cryptic Sue. <laughs> I love Creed. I'm Athena. <laughs> I'm Kylie. I don't think you ever say Athena. That's weird. Well, I, I, I don't think Athena
0: rolled with Creed very well. I'm so stressed. <laughs>